Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. We've started on our anxiety and depression overview. So we're going over several thousand resources, interviews with professionals, books, lectures, peer-reviewed papers, etc. The goal is to make a low-cost resource for people suffering from anxiety and depression. And if we can incorporate enough stuff, enough material, perhaps we can show 15, 20 different possible treatments and give someone their own way to look at it. So for more information on that, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today, my guest is Maria Schmidt. She's a licensed psychologist, and we're going to talk about her work. So, Maria, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for the invitation, Richard. I'm so excited for the platform to share ideas that I hope are very relevant to people and inspire them to to recognize what they already know inside of them, you know, that I could help them be better able to articulate and live their lives the way they want to. So what's your is your work purely clinical because you are a psychologist or are you doing some research as well or even within the clinical sphere? You know, what is important to you about your work? Well, I think what's so relevant in terms of this is that we're we're always learners throughout life, that there is no one time that we ever have it all figured out. So I think in many ways, there's always part of me that's going to look for that enrichment and that uh, expansion of myself. And in doing so, I feel like that's what I bring to the people that I work with is that I can be the solid human being for them. And then in clinical settings that I get to show up in my full self, that I invite them to show up in their full selves as well. I mean, specifically, what what does that mean? What does your practice look like? How is it different from other practices? What are you putting into a session again that's that's structuring it differently? That's a good question. I think we're I'd like to take this as maybe a little bit of where my background has brought me into today. I think that we all have teachers in our lives, the ones that we expect to have, you know, our our parents, our teachers, our communities, but also the the clients, the mentors, the people in our neighborhood, the people who shape us because our social and our physical environments really shape who we are. I really have taken time to reflect and to look at who those people were in my life and how I've been really shaped by so many people in so many different ways going forward. 
And I think that in many ways, I've come to realize that I have a very macro lens in the field of psychology, having, you know, and I can go into the story a little bit, but from that macro lens, I can have a micro focus with people on seeing what's happening in their lives. And I'm always working between the connections between those two realms. So with your permission, maybe I'll just go a little bit into a bit of my story. Would that work? Yeah, go ahead. Well, what I think is important to, first of all, acknowledge is that we all have those teachers. And so my earliest teachers were, of course, my parents, who in many ways dedicated their lives to the field of service, you know, and and so my father's huge garden where he (laughs) took away all the grass around our house. So if you can imagine, it was all garden, all raspberry bushes, just everything you can imagine, because he was wanting to feed the neighborhood. And so I always saw that as just a huge generosity in him. But little did I realize it was also because we were in such poverty. So there's a recognition that in order to feed us, there it was that he did this for ourselves and others. And in that created a community around us. And I think that came most to light, you know, in terms of some of their stories of my parents, of how they forged that in, in that place of recognizing that you have to give something away in order to receive it for yourself. So it's in sharing that we ourselves receive. And so in that time, you know, so Christmas might come around. And one year, I just remembered that, you know, we were to all give up something that we thought would be helpful to another family in need. And so I gave up what I thought was one of my cherished dolls. And lo and behold, that was the year (laughs) that we received the Christmas hamper. And I it was to my absolute surprised that we were that family that we were receiving this so I got the doll back that I so had a hard time parting with but it was an important piece but we also got back some of the cereals and you know canned goods that I was like oh good that's out of the house cool did you get back all the stuff that you guys put into it or did you get other stuff yeah we it was just a whole they must have put it all in a bin and just kind of picked you know like what would this family need and and just kind of gave us what was there um, from That's that cool. inventory, but that created a real strong sense in my upbringing, in my environment of just really recognizing that you only see yourselves in relation to other people to some degree. And we never felt poor in that regard. We never felt like we went without. And with, at the time, growing up in the 80s, a lot of people will remember this. There was that famine in Africa. And so I remember thinking like, oh, Ethiopian children, like they're dying how can we send them this food? Like we have extra, you know, and what we have. And so that became kind of a mission in my life that, you know, in many ways, you know, part of that belief to to have something is to give it. I knew at some point I was going to end up overseas. And so I did after my first degree, which was incidentally in sociology. (laughs) So in the study of the fabrics and the systems around us, recognized my role in being overseas. And I bring this in as important because over there I started to realize that there was a lot of things that they were so much more richer in than we were in North America and with that was a strong sense of like they had so much more sense of perspective about them and generosity and rituals and things that made them such a strong people and I returned to Canada with the sense that we need like people need we need in our lives a better sense of what it means to have control and choice and ultimately connection in ourselves. So if that was a straight path to psychology, it wasn't. (laughs) It was first done to community development work where I just wanted to amplify the nature of, you know, how to help societies and different parts of communities and the minimalized peoples to feel like they could have a role and a voice. 
And that was done through different initiatives and population health measures where we actually want to prevent the problems from happening and to see things from that perspective that we don't have to go through so much if we can have a system of stability around us. And so it was from looking at that collective lens that it brought me to a recognition of how important choices are in people's lives and a sense of control. But thanks to my husband, he was the one who recognized that I had so much more enjoyment and satisfaction and fulfillment from when I was working one-on-one with people. Because working with systems is actually really tedious. There's a lot of that research that goes into it, and it's definitely important. But for me, it was really about just being with people in that one-on-one. And so I embraced the chance to actually start the work from that respect of just really looking at it from a place of psychology and always knowing that as much as I wanted to help people in their times of need, how can we, and this is important that we hear it from this way, how can we prevent some degree of some of the things that are happening, just like I would want a married couple to prevent, you know, some of the issues that they're going to encounter by having an awareness of it and speaking about it beforehand. But knowing that life happens, I often say to my clients, there's a blessing and a burden that everything in life changes. So if we can see that there's beauty in things not staying the same, then we can recognize then that we're, we're in this world to prepare ourselves and others for the fact that there's this big piece of life that's going to happen to us, however it unfolds. So you're saying that the therapy that you're doing works better in a group session versus individual or... Just the way in which you're giving the therapy, now you're making more preventative or preparatory time. You're talking about it with the person and saying, like, not only fixing them in the moment, but you're saying, all right, how can we stop this from happening again or escalating, I guess. Or just to have the ability to have the perspective of how all of this is well connected to their lives. That, you know, this is just part of the ultimate purpose of, of how they move forward in many ways. And I'd never like the statement, things happen for a reason, but I do believe that things happen with meaning and it's how to enter into that meaning and to how to recognize the confluence of all those activities from past to to future, you know, how we can be in the present moment is really key. Hello, dear listeners. I want to tell you about a great podcast I've recently found and enjoyed. It's called Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. I like the edginess and the realism of the podcast. Stein interviews people who have overcome big-time obstacles to find success. He has top-notch guests, including Academy Award winners, ex-convicts, Holocaust survivors, sports heroes, you name it. Michael also has an interesting background. In fact, he's a bit of a renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur, a writer, an actor, a filmmaker, and a stand-up comedian. He puts all of this into the interview, including his heart and soul. So if you want to discover the secrets to why and how people do what they do, Then listen in on your favorite podcast player by typing Long Shot Leaders with Michael Stein. Well, all right. So what what are some, um, you know, without naming the person, obviously, like what are some specific examples of what you told or instructed someone to do and they had a positive outcome? Like they they came back to you with a a happy story. Any examples (laughs) of that? Oh, I think I have many. I'm, it's just a matter of, like you say, how to to bring it forward. And I'm sure you have many in your own life and in your own family, you know, of how that's the case. I think knowing that we were going to have this bigger conversation today, I was going to hold it from a place of recognizing how there's kind of four main things that I think really help people recognize where that that bigger perspective can come in. And so I can list those really quickly. And then if we can spend a little bit of time in each, that might be really helpful for your listeners of being able to see their own stories in in mine that I can provide. 
Yeah, let's give some specifics. Go ahead. Sure. Sure. So one of the things was about the idea of, well, I'll list them first. So the three R's actually belong to Dan Siegel. So in his work, he often speaks about that idea that we prepare kids to read and to write and to do their arithmetic. But what do we really need in life to succeed? Like, what is that really about? And, you know, paraphrasing, of course, but in his words, it's about the ability to reflect, our ability to be resilient in the face of change and pain, and our ability to have healthy relationships. And I'm going to add one more to that list, which is about the need for ritual. And maybe that's the one that I can bring from my own family experience and from time overseas, that, you know, there's ritual that anchors us in life. And so I can kind of go through those four R's and just kind of give lots of examples based on those. So Okay, first, so yeah, go ahead. What, what's the first one? Sure. Yeah, first one is reflection. And I'd be curious, Richard, I know how you use this in your own life, because I think you listen to so many people and you, you try to collect so much information for others that I'm sure there's a recognition on your part of how you got to your story about what that means to you. So I'll speak a little bit about how I see it and then please add in with your own experience of that. Sure. I think reflection is... In many ways, people think about it as that ability to find that stillness or that quiet in themselves, to be able to see, like, how how did something happen to me? And, and how did I respond to it? And what does that mean to me? And ultimately, how is that going to impact me? And so we can do that in many different ways. So whether it's through the quiet and the stillness or through speaking out loud to somebody else and having conversations, journaling is a really big one. But I think that the quote that I often think of in this regard is from Viktor Frankl. And it's that quote that says, like, somewhere between stimulus and your response is a space. And whether you think of that space as a breath or a pause, you know, a moment, but you have the power to choose what will come next. And I think it's part of just in that moment that we recognize like it's, it's our minds, but it's, that's the last thing that's going to know and figure this out. It's our bodies, it's our heart, and it's our spiritual interconnected awareness around us that really helps us reflect about what's happening. And so I just put it. I, I guess as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a guy though, that, that just, I mean, no offense, like as a guy that kind of sounds like gobbledygook to me, maybe because I'm a guy, I don't know, maybe I'm just too data driven. If you get someone that is that says, I, I have no clue what you just said to me or that doesn't work for me, what what kind of approach do you do then? Or does that seem to work when you tell everyone? I would figure some people are so different that some of them wouldn't respond with any sense to that. Right. So I'm just bringing that bigger picture first. And you're right. It has to be very relevant to people. And so I often think about it from that place that it's because our minds are the things that aren't making sense of them, right? Because there's, we can't make sense of everything in the moment. So if we think about it more from the body knows, the body holds the realm of experience. It's connected to the earth and to everything around us. So I would get people just to stay right in terms of what's happening right now for you. And just give yourself that ability just to slow down, which I can definitely do (laughs) in talking to you right now too, right? That sense of how do we first see what's happening inside us right now? And then even by just closing our eyes, you know, just that recognition of just turning our awareness inward, there's a whole different landscape that's aware that we can be aware of inside of that first and how our Mm -hmm. emotions work. And I can definitely speak to, you know, just even the, the realm of emotions, as you say, for men, it's a bit harder only because they aren't I think socialized in that degree of having those same um, conversations, but emotions are really just about having a need. 
And so there's a recognition that having an emotion gives us an idea of just like, I'm feeling something. There's an expectation that something might've happened and that I, I'm feeling something around it. But then there's the impact of, of having that emotion leads us to, there's something that is, that is required. And so it's really, that would be my way of helping people recognize what's happening in that moment to them. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big divider. How do you observe that uh, men and women respond to, you know, the techniques that you use? Is it very different? Is it the same? Or is there a different dividing line? It's not men and women. It's, you know, someone has a type A personality versus type B or C. Like, what do you, when do you see people respond differently? And again, what are the delineating factors that tell you, mm, okay, I got to talk to this person in this way instead? Maybe the difference there upon initial reflection is that there's a recognition that there's the people who kind of go through life kind of as a reactionary place. So there's a sense that they're having an expectation that something ought to have happened or should happen. And I think the difference there is the people who can hold themselves in that recognition that they are the ones, because this is what reflection does, is it gives us the ability to see ourselves better, to widen our own understanding of ourselves. And so in that regard, that's part of the bigger piece, you know, of just then there's a commitment that we have to ourselves that is different from expectation. And I would say that's the difference in many ways is that ability to just be able to be still in that moment of recognizing that what I am here, you know, to experiencing is something that it's how I am. It's not necessarily how the event itself is, but through my own sense of what we're, we're looking at. And that might bring me to the recognition of the next R, which is resilience, because different people have a different ability to to bounce or to spring out of whatever uh, challenge was in front of them. And I often think about it from a place of, of um, if you think about resilience, like sometimes that there's so much that people are carrying around them. So if all of us are meant to carry around like a coffee cup full of experiences in our lives and stressors, some people are, they're carrying around, not even a bucket full, but a bathtub full because they take on others and they hold everything in that regard. So work with them would be about how to expel some of that water, you know, so that they can come back to just holding on to what is important in their sphere. And some people that they recognize that their espresso cup needs to be expanded. You know, there's much more that they can take on. And so a big part about resilience is that it's recognizing what is the best for myself in the long term, knowing that I have to have the discipline to do that. And an easy example of that is people look for what's easy in their lives. Like if I had a choice, you know, between like, you need something quick to eat. Do you want to eat the candy that tastes like an apple or the actual apple itself? <laughs> and in that regard, there's a recognition that people default to the candy because it's that brain's immediate knowledge and knowing I need that blood sugar level to go up. And that's the best way to do that immediately. But the long term of that is that taking the apple and having the time to chew it, like to actually slow yourself down to, to bite it, to chew it, to absorb the nutrients from it and convert that into the energy that we need. That's the right thing. You know, it's just going to bed on time. 
being vulnerable in relationships, like that's all that carries this idea that to be resilient means that you're, you're looking at it from that long-term picture of self-care. How is this idea presented? Is it presented when some, you know, when someone's sitting with you in session and each time they're complaining about something, you revisit this or how do you bring this up to them? Cause I just, I guess I get the feeling like, you know, you can tell someone this, even if they go, Oh yeah, you know, you're right. And that sounds good. The practice of it would be fraught with disappointment. And I just don't want to do this right now. I'm feeling like this, that kind of thing. Like, you know, how do you make it a practice so that it actually sticks? Well, there's so many different pieces of that. I, of course, it's, it's in the moment itself. It's so intuitive, you know, to some degree to be able to, to recognize where someone's at. And we always meet them right where they are. So I think there's a recognition that, you know, a big part of our work as therapists is what we call psychoeducation, that we're bringing in all the different aspects of what's important, you know, to have in that bigger picture. But you're right, it's that in that moment, like, what is it that was the barrier that the limitation that kept you from being able to see that? And oftentimes, that's what connects us to our past, or connects us to those old experiences that have gotten in the way that we are acting out of patterns, acting out of cycles, that we're not even aware of. And so we're trying to make the unconscious conscious to them. And so we're being really curious. But in order to be curious, we even have to recognize there's a sense of safety that's involved first, you know, and being able to have somebody, like you say, even speak to those first. And then through that curiosity about what's coming up for them, that we can acknowledge just that in itself. And to be able to have those conversations that help them see themselves. It's not about what I'm seeing in them. It's really about what's bring, being brought out in them. And that's the real time of just knowing that their own bodies, their own systems are giving them that information. Do you have a, a particular example of, again, you don't have to say who it is, obviously, because of privacy, but do you have a specific example where someone was undergoing a certain problem or feeling and you coach them and what they realized and how they improved their situation? Maybe the one I, I take even just from someone earlier this week was a recognition of, you know, when family members are struggling, we can't help but feel like we're, we're struggling ourselves. And so it's really recognizing that that person really wants to be selfless in their needs and really offering so much of them. The invitation then is for me to, in their work, is to help them recognize the importance of of service, but to not, you know, in terms of looking at it from a series of what are the boundaries, like what's the story? What had you, what has you go into somebody else's life and think that you need to rescue them? You know, and there's, we call it the drama triangle. You know, there's certain ways that we can recognize we play certain roles. And in doing so, what we're doing is we're just meeting somebody to some degree in the pattern. And so in this particular example, it's really recognizing that we wanted them not to feel like they had to meet someone in the dysfunction or the crisis of their lives, but rather invite them into the health and the calmness and the stability that they feel in their own. And so in doing so, that's part of that, you know, which would be the next R that we're going to talk about too, is that relational health, you know, so how to, in that initial moment, how to listen to you on your inner sense of who you are. And in doing so, it, gives you a sense of once again recognizing how important it is to and in this particular person's example 
it was about knowing, oh, if I just continually give, 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 and do that from that spirit of they can't do it for themselves, they're robbing that other person of the chance to get the resilience that they need to work through the issue. So that person's job was actually to create a safe container for their family member to go through some of that trouble and to know that that person's going to be totally okay, that they're going to be fully there for them, but they don't have to do it for them, but to help them with that. And a big part of how we do that is with that we listen to each other. Like all of us have certain needs and we'll talk about this in different ways, I'm sure. But one of the biggest needs we have as humans is we need to be heard and we need to be seen. We ultimately need to know that we matter. And a big part of doing that is by giving people the chance to be able to speak and to, to feel alive, you know, in terms of their sense of experience. And I always call it bringing in the A-team. So the A-team is really about that you want to help somebody accept where they're at. And that's a really hard thing to do because who wants to accept pain, you know, to some degree? And that's where there's the work of Tara Brack brings it to that place of we just have to allow it sometimes. Like we just allow the fact that life is here. We have to show up just as it is. You know, we have to acknowledge the work and the, and the frustration or the whatever it is that somebody's experiencing. There's a need to appreciate them, you know, for, for what they know and for what they don't know, and to really give them that sense of affirmation that they're doing the best they can, you know, people in relationship. Is it the listening that you see, oh, the person says, I feel better now, or they're handling their stuff better, or? Starts with that more than, yeah, more than anything else. Yeah, it's because that person needs to know that they are safe and secure in your presence, and by way of just saying that they feel like they get to show up as who they really are. And if we're asking somebody to be vulnerable, you know, because ultimately the biggest piece to feeling known is that we get to feel intimate with someone. And in that place, then we feel safe to tell them about what's happening to us or what we feel. So I would say that the listening piece is going to be the foundation to everything else. It's the foundation of parenting. It's the foundation of bosses and their employees. It's the biggest piece that goes into everything else. Yeah, but I've noticed, uh, you know, as a guy, listening is not enough. You know, that's great. Yeah, you listen. But uh, without solutions, I, I don't feel, you know, personally nearly as fulfilled. But, you know, my wife will say, don't solve the problem, just listen. And to <laughs> me, that's alien. I understand listening is vital. But, you know, I would think, again, different people in your practice respond differently. And some of them, oh, yeah. Yeah. is it enough? Is it not enough? Like, what, what do you observe? When I listen to them or when I offer that? Yeah, listen? when you listen to them and you're in a session and stuff and you listened, but you know, do you have people say, okay, doc, what do I do? You know, yeah, I, I, you heard me, wonderful, but now what? Or do they, do you see that, you know, you've listened and they're just fine with it and they're not really asking for anything else? They're satisfied. Well, I think I'm seeing what you're asking is very much about a transactional point of view. So where you're actually seeing this, that it's almost like a banter going back and forth. And have you had experience yourself in counseling? You know, because I feel like there's the need for emotional attunement. And I'm curious about what your experiences have been. Well, I could tell you a funny experience that scarred <laughs> me a little bit in a funny way. I used to take this yoga class and the teacher would talk about, oh, feel the light coming out of your body and... <laughs> breathe in the spirit. And and then I see her at Starbucks later on that same day, she's smoking a cigarette and on the phone cursing to somebody. And I was like, yeah, lady, that's a very different you for then there was in the studio. And she saw me and she was horrified. It was kind of like literally ran away. I guess I saw the other side of her. So 
just that, you know, that talk and everything, it just, to me, it pushes me away. I guess I want like straight up. And I'm also from New York too. So I just want someone to be just like blunt. tough and yeah. in your face and blunt. So for me, that, that kind of stuff, I, I guess I pull back from it. You know, it's my, it's me. It's not the person, obviously, but it's me. So I don't know if that brings any clarity to my crazy psyche. Well, I think, Richard, there's a, a sense that, you know, the fact that, no, we can't even see each other right now. There's, you know, there's a recognition that being in the presence of somebody has a very different relationship that's involved than just speaking, you know, at someone. Like, I would like to speak to you. I would like to speak to your listeners, you know, and and in doing so, we're actually having a conversation with them, you know, that, that whatever they hear from what we're talking about, that they can take forward. I don't deny that I'm one of those people who actually, believe it or not, as attuned as I am to the relationship, I do like people to tell me the truth. Like I like the feedback. I want to be in that conversation with them. I actually think that the greatest gift that we give to other people is taking care of ourselves, you know, and and in doing so, like just that we do things for ourselves and we have to know what we're doing to be able to do that. But the other side of that is that the greatest gift we receive from other people is that we're allowed to grow, like that we're not just the same person that we were two weeks ago or three years ago or when you knew me back in high school over 20 years ago that we're allowed yeah, to just know, come forward. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because, yeah, I've, I've recently spoken to someone I haven't spoken to in at least 10 years. And right off the bat, they're talking to me as if, a, you know, I'm the same person from at least 10 years ago. And it made me very mad. I don't like that, you know. So I understand why that's so important. Even after, like you said, two weeks. So how do you acknowledge that someone has grown or changed or at least they're on the path they're trying? I like what you said. That's why I'm asking. It's a good yeah. thing. So I think if I can just clarify your question, you're just wondering, like, how do people know that they're changing? Like, but that. No, like when they come into therapy, let's say it's been two weeks or a month. And, you know, based on what they're telling you, you can see they're progressing, even if it's a little bit. Mm-hmm. So how do you acknowledge that and make them feel better? You know, a month ago when you came in, you were, you know, you used up my whole box of tissues. But this, this you know, session, you're doing much better. I just want to let you know that, you know, congratulations or something. Lisa, how do you say that to people in a way that's supportive? And this is where if I can even help just by debunking a few of those ideas, you know, therapy is so interesting because you're right. Some people will cry the entire session and, and, and will continue to for, you know, as long as we work together, because that's part of how they get to show up in themselves. And some people that that stoicness is part of it you know, for a long time too, but we all have those differences. I had a client just the other day who said, you saw tears once, you'll never see them again. And, you know, and I just kind of laughed because I said, the tears are actually what shows success to some degree. You know, it's that ability, like, you know, one of the best teachers out there, I think is Gordon Newfeld, And he just speaks about finding the tears because it's recognizing that we all hit frustration in life. Like we're all going to have difficulties. And what's so interesting is that idea that we, if we fight those, that's what brings us into anger, probably first at ourselves, then to other people. And if that doesn't help us get to where we want to go, we go to what sometimes in the literature is called aggression. I think of it more just as control, like we're going to do anything just to take some degree of power and to do something with it, whether that's eating disorders or addictions or just having just a a really big outburst at somebody but here's the hardest part Richard with with that mentality that you might carry unknowingly you know from your unconscious and your New York you know places 
that there's a degree of futility, and that's a horrible word to say, but there's a sense that when we actually have to grieve, where we recognize that there's a level of life is as it is. And if we go through life just thinking we have to endure one experience to the next, that's what creates that that discomfort constantly, where we're always life is coming at us. And maybe that's part of what I learned when I was in overseas in Africa is there's a recognition that people have this different place about them where they get to embrace life differently, that they'd see that experience are full of it, of so many layers. And I often use the analogy of air with people or the acronym of air. So if you think about it this way, nobody can breathe for you right? To be alive is to breathe. And how we breathe in itself is important. But the last thing I want to do is tell my clients, let's just sit there and breathe. That isn't what I will do for them. But I will teach them that lengthening and slowing the breath, you know, over time. And that's a strategy for dealing with anxiety to get us into a parasympathetic nervous state, which means that we can go back to rest and digest, but also back to what we're talking about with reflection and integration of our experiences comes with this idea that AIR, like we need, we are in control of only these three things. And at the root of it is the degree of we're in charge of our actions, our interpretations, and ultimately our responses. But let me put that in just a bigger way, if you don't mind. Do you, do you think that would be a good place to go? Would that be relevant? Sure. Yeah. But yeah. So like the A in many ways, I like, I like adding things and having alliteration. That's what helps people remember things. So within the A, you know, what you're in charge of is A, it's your your attitude, like your inner beliefs about yourselves and the world. And you're going to notice like you're going to go through life feeling the world is threatening or the world is safe. You know, there's a recognition of how we even look at things. Sometimes I think people look at the world from that place of those absolutes, you know, in terms of, you know, safe or threatening, you know, dark or light. And I often ask the question in the middle of those and what's missing? Like instead of worrying about the absolutes, let's just go and something's missing about this experience for you. What is that? And that ultimately helps them recognize the attitude to which that they're coming to something, which moves them to your approach, you know, because how we speak to ourselves influences the messages that we take on, the core beliefs that we feel. And so how we approach life, you know, it's recognizing all of those influences that have that have been had on us, but also that we have on others, which then translates into our actions. As I had an old teacher tell me, nobody sees your thoughts, nobody sees your feelings, but they see your behaviors. And so, you know, in many ways, we want to act and we want to behave with something that's reflective of our truth. And so that's what you're in control of in that A dimension, your attitude, your approach, your actions. That's that nobody can do that. But you no matter how much they're coming at you, that's what we have to give back, which leads us to the eye of, you know, we how we interpret the world, as we said, it's how we are not through how the world is like our own biases, our personalities, our experiences, our culture. And so we're going to look at these from that bigger picture, but we actually have to slow down to do that. Like, so even someone like you, Richard, who has probably a million thoughts a minute, there's a recognition of by helping me slow you down, which is what counseling ultimately does. You won't jump to conclusions. You won't go to the same old patterns and cycles that you've always considered. Was that similar to how you've recognized all of your racing thoughts? You know, I've had one or two experiences where um, it's weird. I remember I went to go close on a property that I was buying like 20 years ago and I was really amped and agitated. And the lady in there, I don't know what, she like mentally drugged me or something. She, mm-hmm. 
she chilled me out so much. I came out of there and felt like, I don't know, I like completely changed. It was really weird. It's very rare that I've seen that, but I've seen it. Hmm. So I think then let's go with that, that there's a sense of you have to know your, your own integrity, you know, to some degrees and going into something like that, you know, there's that sense of you say what you mean and mean what you say. And, and part of that is your intention to not be stuck in, you know, somebody else's agenda for you, but to, to recognize like, what is it that I want to create? I find that so many people put so much effort into keeping the fear at bay that they actually don't put the effort into acknowledging where do I actually want to go and what work do I put in that direction? They're so busy trying to fight the fire that they're actually not building the house to some degree. And so, yeah. Yeah. And just for interest of time, and I really, sorry, I just feel like I had so much to share, but I want to make it so relevant for your listeners, you know, is that final R of the AIR, you know, is that last piece about, you know, your time for reflection, we've already talked about your responses, you know, which is not just your words, but how you say them, and your ability to recognize the emotions of what you're trying to say, you know, that it leads us to that recognition of that we're responsible for our choices, for our actions, for our happiness, like nobody does that for us, you know? So if I think about that, there's the sense of self and underneath the self, there's our, our children, you know, or our families, there's our relationships and our, our partners, and there's ultimately our career where we contribute to the self has to be that balance of those three legs. And we know what happens when one of those legs is wobbly, you know, or, or shorter than the rest, you know, we overcompensate. And so we really want to make sure that we give energy to that recognition of, you know, I'm responsible for how these look as opposed to them only thinking that they are responsible for my happiness, just turning things around a little bit. Well, hey, Maria, air has a second R. I think I, I kind of rushed you past it, but what is it? Oh, no, actually, it was the, the fourth R of the whole ideas of how do we prevent, you know, people from feeling like they can't handle the lives that they're given kind of thing and, and to help prepare them. And I thought that the idea of ritual was that last R, you know, and so different people have different rituals, but I just want to hold that there's obviously the ritual around gratitude. Like if we neurosymmetries in our brains like that, we gravitate to the negative, then that's what wires, they put fires together, wires together. So if we we attune ourselves to what's happening that's going well in our lives over supper at bedtime. People do it all the time, but just to be mindful that that's actually changing your brain little by little, you know, and other R's, you know, are like, how do we welcome people into our presence? Like, how do we show them that we're, we're seeing them and that we're really recognizing them. But on the other side of that is how do we let go of bad experiences? You know, and that's a ritual too. And so whether that's lighting a candle and writing a letter to, you know, our infertility or writing a letter to, to somebody who's hurt us or the brain injury that we've incurred, you know, just that we recognize that there's a way we have to see that as something that is separate from us and being able to recognize its impact in our lives. And therefore some degree of our purpose of what that means for us in moving forward, that it's shaped us to be who we are. So to me, these are you know, they're big rituals, but then there's also just the little ones like I do with my kids, like today being the first day of a new month. And I actually, we always start the day with ice cream. Doesn't matter what else is going on. You know, we have ice cream, you know, and it's just a way of just saying like, here's a brand new month. Let's embrace it. Let's enjoy it. And let's just see what experiences come from this. And it's just always something to look forward to. So I think that's what I want to just impart, you know, as that final thought about what really helps people 
keep out of that place, that depression or stress and anxiety control their lives is that recognition that we actually have so much more choice and control over what's happening to us. But a lot of that is that prevention of being able to see the bigger picture, but in the smallest of ways. Okay. Well, very good. Um, Maria, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you for, I don't know if you provide therapy nationwide or just in your city or, you know, where can people look and see more of your work and get help from it? I appreciate that, you know, it's an interesting piece of our system, but we're regulated, you know, according to province or state. So you really have to be able to have that therapist have that recognition. They have that designation of that particular place that you're in. But I do have a blog where I try to share ideas that are relevant, just like the ones we were sharing today. And so I'm more than happy for people to go to mariaschmidt.ca and check out a blog. And one of the things that I thought I'd put up there for your listeners is something I just called the strategies to success. You know, so what are the things that we are to avoid? And it's all things that people know, right? Like, let's avoid sugar, hey, Maria, let's just... avoid stress. Yeah. Okay. Well, very <laughs> good. No, Maria, thank you for coming on. And uh, I didn't mean to turn this into like a psychoanalysis of me. So, I, you know, for listeners, I, I hope that you got stuff out of this. I didn't mean to, again, jump in and make it about me, but hopefully it was instructive. So yeah, thank you again for coming. Maria. We hear ourselves through other stories for sure. You betcha. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.